Hello and welcome to the Historian's Cut. In 1975, the Monty Python sextet of John Cleese, Graham Chapman, Michael Palin, Eric Idle, Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam released their first feature-length, non-sketch-based film. A loving pastiche of King Arthur and his quest for the Holy Grail, the film has since gained cult status, with generations of schoolchildren and adults recalling the best gags, insults and shrubbery purchasing advice to their friends and families. But what can Monty Python and the Holy Grail tell us about the Arthurian legends? My name is Dr. Morris Brodie. With me to answer this question are cinema historian Dr. Sam Manning. Hello. And in a change from our usual programming, I'll be asking the questions of self-described oral tradition enthusiast and longtime anchor of beloved podcast The Historian's Cut, Phil Heaton. Hi, Morris. Sam, I'll start with you. This week, it's your task to provide our listeners with a brief summary of the plot. And I promise you won't be cut off mid-sentence like the historian shown in the film. Thank you, Morris. So the film is set in 932 AD, uh, where King Arthur persuades Sir Bedivere, Sir Lancelot, Sir Galahad and Sir Robin to join him in the Fellowship of the Round Table and then find the Holy Grail. After failing to invade a castle, defended by a sarcastic French knight, a famous historian tells us of their decision to seek the Grail individually, but is then murdered. Each of the knights then faces unique challenges, such as encountering a three-headed knight, uh, rescuing a damsel in distress, and finding an appropriate shrubbery. At the same time, the police begin to investigate the murder of the historian. The knights eventually come back together to battle a deadly rabbit and cross the Bridge of Death. Um, not everyone makes it, though, but Arthur and Bedivere eventually find the castle of Ah, the resting place of the Holy Grail. But they also find the sarcastic French knight who covers them in manure. And at this point, the police arrive to make arrests and abruptly shut down the film. Thanks, Sam. That was very concise. Perhaps you could also tell us a little bit about the reception of the film at the time. Absolutely. As you said in your introduction, it's their first non-sketch-based film. So they had made uh, a compilation film called And Now for Something Completely Different, which is produced largely for the American market which did relatively well, got them an audience uh, across the Atlantic, and the fact that they were successful there meant that they were able to get finance to make this film. The film did pretty well upon its uh, release. Some people, you know, criticised some of the humour, but those people who liked Python generally also liked this film. Again, as you said in your introduction, you know, it gained cult status and its reputation grew uh, a lot over the years, uh, and probably... I suppose the best way to show that is by the fact that lots of people can now quote the film, including yourself, Morris. I understand that uh, you and your school friends could pretty much quote it verbatim from from start to finish, uh, which I think shows its influence. But you're in good company, Morris, because Elvis was also reportedly a big fan of the film. He ordered his own print and watched it several times in Graceland. Yes, it was very it was very successful, um, but not quite as controversial as the follow-up film, The Life of Brian which is also very well remembered. Great. Thanks, Sam. The question this week, uh, as I said earlier, is what can Monty Python and the Holy Grail tell us about the Arthurian legends, the legends of King Arthur and his gallant knights? Why don't we start, Phil, with some kind of background, I suppose, to the Arthurian legends? If you could maybe sketch out a little history of, of the legends themselves, perhaps key authors when it comes to the legends, 
and maybe the evolution of the legend up until the current day? I think that's a good idea because um, it is something that has evolved over time. You can't talk about the Arthur legend. It's a body of work. And yeah, I will be referring to various authors and epochs in this development. So yeah, I think it's good to kind of nail it now. So a body of work, stories and characters that have been used by chroniclers and storytellers over the last 1500 years to tell stories about and explore themes such as the origins of the British people and the British royal family, themes such as chivalry and romance, and also themes such as ideal kingship. Over the centuries, the character of Arthur has evolved, as has the degree of focus given to him relative to other members of his court. Historians tend to focus on, let's say, five main authors in showing the development of the Arthurian legends. Arthur's stories probably started out as stories around a Welsh folk hero to whom deeds and stories were ascribed in early medieval Welsh oral literature. We don't actually have these because they were oral, but historians believe that they exist firstly because there are fleeting references made to Arthur in Welsh chronicles in the early Middle Ages. So there are references to him as a great warrior And there's also sometimes other kings and warriors are described as not as great as Arthur. So that assumes that he's a collective point of reference. Another thing that makes historians believe that there was this body of oral literature surrounding Arthur was that when eventually an account was written down, and this was in the 12th century, so the the mid-1100s, that first account was so detailed and contained so many stories that historians don't believe that this can be just the product of one person's imagination, that it was drawing on pre-existing material to which the author had had access. This account that I was talking about from the mid-1100s was written by a guy called Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was a Norman based in in South Wales in Monmouth. Uh, It was written in Latin, and it was called The History of the Kings of Britain, and it's basically an origins myth. So it starts off with Brutus of Troy, who flees from Troy and becomes the first ruler of Britain. And Jethro Monmouth then chronicles all of the subsequent rulers up to King Arthur. And from him, we get many aspects of the Arthurian legend for the first time, such as Merlin, Escalibur, Guinevere, and a final battle after which Arthur retires to Avalon. So that's number two. I'll get through the others a bit, a bit quicker. So the, the third one is somebody called Chrétien de Troyes, literally means the Christian of Troyes, which is a town in northern France. So he he was writing in the court of Marie de Champagne, who was Eleanor of Aquitaine's daughter. So Eleanor of Aquitaine was the wife of Henry II. And he shifts the focus away from Arthur to the members of Arthur's court and their knightly deeds. And we hear in Chrétien de Troyes for the first time about Lancelot and his adulterous relationship with Guinevere. And we hear for the first time about the quest for the Holy Grail, albeit just in a fragment. It's in a story written by Chrétien de Troyes, which was unfinished, which could possibly explain why that story was taken up so much in the subsequent 250 years, where the deeds of Arthur's courts were expanded and exported across Europe, to the point where setting a story so that it starts off in Arthur's courts became a really common motif for much of medieval literature. 
then in 1469, so we're now in the Wars of the Roses in, in England, a political prisoner called Thomas Mallory, he was under house arrest and he took that time to write what many people think as the first novel in English. What was he arrested for, Phil? So he was arrested for a number of things. It's a strange story in itself that this man ended up writing this novel because there's no record of him ever having written any literature until the point when he was arrested and put under house arrest. And he was arrested for basically being a bit of a thug. So cattle rustling, attempted assassination, also some charges of rape as well were, were laid against him. So everything that we know about him prior to him actually writing the story does not suggest that he's going to be a great figure in English literature, but he does write this prose account of King Arthur. And, and what he does is he basically takes Geoffrey of Monmouth, who focused much more about the historical Arthur, or, albeit in inverted commas, so how Arthur became king. And then he combines that with then all of the tales about the knights that the French authors had been developing. And he puts that in a single account with an overarching narrative structure that connects the different sections together. He's significant for that, but I think also for the historical accident that William Caxton, who set up the first printing press in England shortly after Mallory had finished working on this, he chose Mallory's Mort d'Arthur as one of the first books that he would publish. And it becomes a massive bestseller. And that really cements this as a, as a definitive piece of work. That was number four. So we're now skipping on to number five. And that's much later. That's in the 19th century because King Arthur has gone out of fashion big time, particularly I think it's a combination of the Reformation and the Civil War when absolute monarchy and also stuff like obsession with relics are seen as well catholic and not english so it goes out of fashion after the english civil war but then comes back in in a big way with the victorians key to this is tennyson he writes a number of poems which were collected into a body of work called the idols of the king and they're considered key in raising the popularity of the arthurian legends again but i think it's also due to wider Victorian interest in medieval culture, also Arthur being seen as as a model for empire, perhaps, but then also Arthur in during this period becomes a bit of a, a boy's own hero and a model for young manly values such as courage, restraint, and, and gentlemanly behaviour. No, that's very interesting, Phil. That's a good summary of the evolution and the embellishment, I suppose, of the the Arthurian legends over time. One thing that the film starts off with is there's a blank screen and then it shows the date as being 932 AD. Why do you think the Pythons picked that particular date to set the film in? Is that a specific date tied to Arthur at all? So I would say that the Pythons are being deliberately anachronistic here because they have picked a date that has nothing to do with King Arthur. I think in doing so, you could say that they're satirising the pseudo-histories, which have claimed that Arthur is real and have tried to link him to specific dates. They, they could have picked a date for that reason that was deliberately wrong. Of course, they could have just picked 932 because it sounded funny to them. If Arthur had existed, then it would have been in the period after the Romans pulled their legions out of Britain, but before the Anglo-Saxons had fully established themselves in England and southern Scotland. 
So in other words, in the fifth or sixth centuries, so that would be five centuries before 932. So it uh, doesn't really have any bearing on any of the, of the Arthurian legends themselves? In, in a word, no. So, I mean, you, you said there that the, so the story itself might not necessarily be linked that much to the, the year in which it's, it's set, but I think the film still presents a lot of the, the stereotypes we have about the Dark Ages, which I know in itself is quite a, a contested term, but I'll, I'll just use it for, for convenience here. I mean, how, how representative are those some of those stereotypes presented in the film? So, for instance, we see the kind of bring out your dead scene, uh, we see the burning of the witches um, scene. Are those the kinds of things that were, were happening at the time that the film is set, or are they just kind of stereotypes of that period? So I'm I'm not a historian of the of the early Middle Ages, Sam. So I, I can't tell you too much about the socio-economic situation at the time. What I can tell you is that it's not typical of the depictions of the world. Arthur tends to be presented as living in a very nostalgic golden age. So what I think the Pythons are doing is that they're trying to puncture the idea of a golden age, glorious past, and to remind audiences that the past is not necessarily more glorious. And in fact, in their view, you know, the past is a time of inequality, disease and, and ignorance. I think that's definitely the impression of the past that comes across by watching those opening scenes. Now, whether or not that is an accurate picture of, of late antiquity, early uh, the early Middle Ages, I would say that definitely some early medievalists would contest that. In fact, I do remember in my first lecture as an undergraduate, when we were doing our first lecture on European history after the Romans, we were shown this clip of the Bring Out Your Dead by an early medieval historian who basically said, this is the idea that people have as the Dark Ages. Actually, I'm going to tell you that the Dark Ages were not a period of darkness at all. They were something very different. You mentioned in the, the timeline that you gave there, Phil, about the idea of, of relics. And um, I suppose the Holy Grail is one of the most famous of the relics of this period and of the last 2000 years, I suppose. Why does the Holy Grail appear at this particular point and hasn't appeared in some of the earlier oral history tellings of the Arthur story, do you think? For me, this is something that's fascinating. The Holy Grail has become so famous and so shrouded in, in so much myth and, and mythologizing. It's really interesting to look at the specific historical circumstances that gave rise to the first mention of a Holy Grail which, as I said, was in Christian de Troyes' unfinished account of the night, Percival. I would say that that particular historic context is a confluence of two cultural strands which converge at the same time. So the first would be at the end of the 12th century, you see the Crusader kingdom lose Jerusalem. So that was a kingdom that had been a Western Christian kingdom in, in Jerusalem that had lasted for roughly 100 years, and that falls to Saladin at the end of the 12th century. So you see in those decades, returning from the East, lots of people who, who'd been out in the East, and they would bring back with them lots of relics. At the time, people believed that holy people, they were imbued with a certain power, or the word that was used was vitality, and that those holy figures could transmit their vitality to whatever they touched as the person with the most vitality would have been uh, Jesus. 
So things that he had touched would therefore obviously have the most powerful properties themselves. So around that time, returning to Europe were things such as parts of the Holy Cross, the Turin Shroud, which I think uh, a lot of people will have heard of at least the name, and then also the Crown of Thorns. The King of France, he, he actually built a, a fantastically ornate monument to house the Crown of Thorns. You could call it a kind of a bit of a relic fever was going on at this time. Interestingly, we have the crust, we have the shroud, we have the crown of thorns, but in none of the inventories of the relics that were coming back from Jerusalem at that time, the cup of Christ does not appear in any of these inventories. So I think that kind of opens up a space for speculation for, for where it might be. So I'd say that that would be one of the streams of that is contributing to this, this kind of cultural moment. But then another would be the Celtic sources, those writers working in the north of France in, in the 12th century, they were drawing on Welsh sources for the characters and, and events that they were writing about. And there is a long tradition in Welsh and Irish oral literature of people engaging in quests after magical objects. And one object that does often appear in this Welsh and Irish tradition is a magic cauldron. And it depends on the accounts, but sometimes this might serve unlimited amounts of meals, this cauldron. In others, it might restore life to the dead. You can see where I'm, I'm going here. So I think that there's, it's the coming together of these two traditions at this particular time at the end of the 12th century. Relic fever, but also it's drawing on lots of body of work from Irish and Welsh literature that comes together. And then that's where we get the first mention of the Grail from. Phil, just to try and link that back to the film, ask a slightly facetious question. Was there a holy hand grenade of Antioch? And assuming that the answer is no, do you think that this is just kind of absurdist joke or do you think it's kind of satirising this relic fever of the time? I will answer your first question. Holy hand grenade of Antioch is not also not to be found in the inventory of relics. <laughs> I would like to tend on the side of giving credit to the Pythons. I think in general, they do seem to have done a, quite a lot of research and to have actually kind of thought a lot about the things that they are satirizing. Uh, but I think perhaps in this case, maybe they're not satirizing necessarily the relic fever that was going on in the, in the 12th century, but perhaps more the specific Holy Grail fever that then developed in the 19th century when, for example, like a whole tourism industry around Glastonbury was based around its association with the Holy Grail. And then the strand that then kind of builds on from there, which come without in things like Dan Brown and so on. The idea of holy relics, I suppose, is also quite obviously in this, in this context quite a Christian thing. I'm wondering about the connections between the Arthurian legend and attitudes to Christianity and um, what, what that kind of strands trying to tell us? I think it's worth remembering that if there had been a Welsh warlord called Arthur or with a different name, then he would have been a Christian because Arthur's people, Welsh as a, as a shorthand or you could use the word British, they were descendants of the Romano-British people who had maintained their Christianity, if not the Roman language, after the withdrawal of the Romans from Britain. And they saw themselves defending not only themselves as a people and a culture against Saxon invaders, but they also very much saw themselves as defending uh, the Christianity of the islands from the Saxons who were pagans. I think um, to take that on into subsequent chroniclers and tellers of the Arthur stories, 
in the 12th century, I think it's fair to say that that was a time where everything was seen through a worldview that was influenced by Christianity. So obviously, Arthur and the knights become Christian heroes because of the context in which it was being written. But there are also specific examples of, for example, Geoffrey Monmouth, his account of the young Arthur, the sword in the stone, which people at home will, will be familiar with. There are clear kind of parallels to the gospel. So in the gospel, Jesus is a bit of a child prodigy, isn't he? He goes to the temple and he's able to reason and debate with his elders at a level that you wouldn't expect from somebody so young. And there's a scene in Jeffrey's Arthur where King Arthur is doing the same thing at, at such a young age. So that would be one example of clear ways in which Christianity and the Arthur legends are co-mingling. And another one would be the introduction of the Grail myth to the Arthur legends, and that explicitly creates continuity between New Testament figures, such as Joseph of Arimathea, who caught the blood of Christ in the in the cup, and then, at least according to the Arthurian legends that developed over the 12th century and subsequent centuries, he then brought that to Britain and becomes the first guardian of the Grail in Britain. Yeah, no, it's interesting that uh, the Pythons themselves start off with the King Arthur legend and lampooning that, and then obviously the next film, The Life of Brian, they take the, the big cheese and then lampoon the life of Christ as well. So it's interesting continuity there. One thing I, I wanted to ask you about, Phil, was there's a scene when Arthur refer or Graham Chapman refers to himself as King of the Britons, and then Terry Jones's character, who's playing a woman at the time, doesn't have any idea who the, the Britons are as such. And you mentioned the kind of idea of calling Arthur's people the Britons or the Welsh. Uh, I'm wondering about what the Arthurian legends have in terms of their sort of nation building aspect, in terms of who are the Britons and when did they first arise and when did the term Britons arise? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Morris. I think Arthur has played a key role in nation building on the, on the island of Britain for millennia, really. So just to start with your original question, so Britain takes its name from the Roman province of Britain. And as I said earlier, when the Romans pulled back their garrisons in the early 5th century, they left behind Romano-Britons. These were Christians who spoke a language which would become modern-day Welsh, Cornish or Breton, but which was at the time spoken across the whole of England, Wales, and at least parts of southern Scotland and potentially further north into northern Scotland as well. So as Saxon invaders began to settle England and southern Scotland, these Britons were basically forced to flee to western mountainous regions, so Wales, Cornwall, but also Cumbria, Galloway, Strathclyde. And the figure of Arthur in the Welsh uh, legends, he is one of the warriors who is attempting to hold back this westward advance of the Saxons. So in this sense, Arthur can be seen as part of a Welsh nation-building project, drawing a straight line between the Roman Empire and themselves and showing how their claims to legitimacy, their claims to be the people of this island, predate that the Saxons. So that would be one example. But then I think probably possibly even more interesting is that Arthur, I think, can also be seen as part of a later Anglo-Norman nation-building project. So the Normans obviously conquered England and parts of Wales in 1066, as we know, and the subsequent Anglo-Norman Empire, which straddled the English Channel, was 
basically in a bitter rivalry with the French kings for control of northern France. And I think this should be seen as the context for Geoffrey of Monmouth writing his History of the Kings of Britain, because basically it was an attempt to create for the Anglo-Norman states an equivalent of the Charlemagne, the Charlemagne figure. And in fact, Geoffrey of Monmouth, he takes this to the extreme that his Arthur in his History of the Kings of Britain Having fought back the Saxons, he then goes on to conquer the whole of the Western Roman Empire, which is just what Charlemagne does. And I think another thing that's interesting is that Geoffrey, he really vilifies the Saxons. He sets a precedent for the Saxons being the bad guys in, in the Arthur legends. And I, I think you could say that he's making the point that it's actually, or he's trying to make the point that actually the Normans, by defeating the Anglo-Saxon Harold Godwinson, at the Battle of Hastings, they were actually saving the British from the Saxons, so positioning William of Conqueror as a kind of return of Arthur. So Arthur, definitely a part of Anglo-Norman nation-building as well. And I just want to also mention the, the bad guys in the film are French, and it's interesting that that's the chosen enemy, even though the Normans, who are using the Arthur legend to justify their own conquest, are coming from France, kind of thing, from Normandy. What do you think the story is there? Is that used by the Pythons as the French are usually the enemy of, of the English in lots of literature and lots of films or in kind of later periods? I think there could be two reasons for the inclusion of the French. So I think it could be, again, the idea that we mentioned at the beginning with the choice of 932, the Pythons being deliberately anachronistic. I think they would have assumed that most people watching would have realised that the French came along in 1066 and Arthur is, is from before that. So it's just their way of kind of fucking things up a little <laughs> bit by having something that deliberately jars with what people uh, think of as that supposed kind of golden age. But I, th I think another possible explanation would be maybe, I think deliberate or not, I think the presence of the French in the Python version it's a useful reminder of the French DNA, which the Arthurian legends have, both in the sense that the Arthur myth was developed in opposition to the Charlemagne myth, but then also in the sense the French authors, albeit Norman French authors, played a massive role in developing those stories in the 12th century. Another thing that is presented in the in the film is people so is questioning. Uh, monarchy is the natural form of governments. There's a joke with um, you know a group of anarchists <laughs> who are questioning uh, Arthur. <laughs> yeah, an anarchist idealists who are questioning Arthur's authority as king of the Britons. I mean, I'm assuming you know the joke is that these people wouldn't really have been in a position to to question the authority of monarchy in that period. So I think. This is why I, I do get enthusiastic about Monty Python and the Holy Grail as a really great retelling of the Arthurian legends is because so many of the themes which consistently recur during all of the retellings are still there in, in Monty Python, albeit in a, either a subverted or a satirised form. So throughout its history, the Arthur legends have been used for discussing, exploring what ideal kingship is, what it means. So, for example, I've already mentioned that Mallory, he wrote his Mort d'Arthur during the Wars of the Roses, but also um, 
Geoffrey Monmouth, when he was writing in the in the 12th century, he was writing during a period, ironically, called the Anarchy. The Anarchy refers to the civil wars between the supporters of King Stephen and the supporters of Matilda, who was Henry I's daughter. And I don't think it's a coincidence that these two iconic moments in the history of the Arthur myths both take place at times of great instability, because I think in those moments it makes sense in a way for people to be fascinated or almost kind of longing for a golden age of stable leadership and of just lawmaking. To take Mallory as an example, so the Wars and the Roses was a period typified by weak kingship, powerful warlords and factions, all of which he would have known lots about being a convicted assassin himself. And in contrast, Arthur's court in Mallory, it's a place where all of the knights are brought together in unity, represented by the round table. And interestingly, in, in Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, when Arthur's kingdom eventually falls, it is due to division of the court into factions, one supporting Arthur and one supporting Lancelot. So to go back to your question, Sam, I'm not sure there were any anarcho-syndicalists in either the 5th century or the 12th century. But I think the, the discussion of ideal forms of governance, for me, that's why that scene is definitely not out of place in, in the film. Another very interesting scene, I think, is the Castle Anthrax scene, where Galahad comes uh, and tries to find the Grail at the abode of several fair maidens and is tempted into compromising positions, shall we say. I'm wondering about the role of gender and of, of sex, I suppose, in the court of Arthur. Obviously, you have characters like Guinevere coming in, and then there's obviously the romance between her and Lancelot, and her and Arthur, obviously. The Pythons, do you think they've kind of subverted the role of women in the Arthur legends? So, for a start, I think you could say that there's quite a lot of continuity So the theme of women ensnaring knights is rife in the Arthur legend going back a long way. You mentioned Lancelot. The reason why Lancelot is ultimately unsuccessful in obtaining the Grail, not in the uh, Python's version, but in earlier versions, is because he's tricked into impregnating Elaine, who uses magic to make him believe that he's actually sleeping with Guinevere when instead it's it's Elaine that he's sleeping with. So this idea of... of that old uh, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> uh, being uh, one of the, the main kind of challenges or, or pitfalls of a budding knight. This is a very common theme in um, the Arthur legends. And I, I think the joke that the Pythons are having here is that this time the knight, rather than trying to resist, which is what the knights usually do in the Arthur stories... He really is quite happy to be ensnared in Castle Anthrax, and it's actually his mates rescuing him that he's trying to fight off in the end. And I think they, you can see the marks of their research here is that they've chosen Galahad for, for this knight because in the Arthurian legends, he is the knight destined to find the Grail because, unlike Lancelot, he is chaste and pure. So I think he was chosen so that people familiar with the tales would bring that context to the joke as well. Like, I think it is interesting to consider the historical reasons for why this character of the woman snaring knights is a feature of medieval Arthurian accounts. So the Middle Ages has been called by some historians the Age of Guilt. And the reason for that is the power and the role of the church is increasing. And as such, 
there were greater attempts by the church to control individuals' behaviour, including sexual activity, which was considered essentially sinful by the church at the time, to the extent that sex, and that includes sex within marriage, was actually prohibited on Sundays, Wednesdays, during Lent, during Advent, and also at other times of the year. Quite restrictive. That's not to say that people were literally abstaining from having sex with their wives on, on a Wednesday. But I think the point is, is that there is evidence that people felt genuinely guilty that they were having sex with their wives on a Wednesday, hence the phrase, the age of guilt. So I think in that context, you could think that perhaps the authors of these stories and maybe their audience were taking perhaps a perverse pleasure in overwhelming their heroes with temptations that they themselves were struggling to resist. Maybe just just to stay on the other part of your question, Morris, about the role of women. So I think you could perhaps criticise the Pythons because there are a lot of strong, interesting female characters in the Arthurian legends, whether that's Guinevere or, for example, another one would be Morgan Le Fay, who's Arthur's envious sister, and basically... These parts have been written out wholesale from the Python version. On the other hand, one thing that the Pythons do do is that they subvert the damsel in distress motif, which features significantly in the Arthurian legends. And in fact, it's quite interesting that it's one of the things that the Arthurian legends themselves are responsible for. For example, Chrétien de Troyes, before he started writing in, in the late 12th century, women tended to be depicted as either second-class citizens or property. And Chrétien is cited as being highly influential in, in establishing the genre of courtly love, which would typically include a beautiful woman who was inaccessible, a noble knight who was sworn to serve her, a forbidden passionate love shared by both, and the danger or impossibility of consummating that love, which I think has become an enduring motif of Western literature, and I think is another of the things that the Pythons are trying to dismantle with, for example, the Castle Anthrax scene, but also um, the damsel in distress that Lancelot really makes a hash of rescuing as well. It's actually Prince Herbert, who's not a damsel in distress, but uh, but a man <laughs> in distress. I suppose that kind of um, nicely fits on to the role of chivalry in the Arthurian legends and maybe some of the ways that the Pythons have subverted that with how John Cleese plays Lancelot is very enthusiastic and very, uh, well, goes around murdering everyone, basically. Are there any things that you'd like to talk about in terms of how the Arthurian legends create chivalry or cement the idea of chivalry? What's the, what's the role of the legends there, do you think? I think that's another of those social cultural strands that is happening in the 12th century, which ends up bleeding into... Um, the Arthur stories is the emergence of the knight errants. So during that period, due to inheritance practices at the time, normally only one son would inherit the particular noble family's estate. Not always the eldest son, but it would just be one son. And as a result of that, there were actually quite a lot of knights just roaming around the countryside. They would be well-trained in martial arts because you would train up all of your sons just in case one of them you know, died so the other one could take their place. They would literally leave the family estate seeking their fortune and that would either mean trying to find a widow that they could marry 
or maybe fighting as a mercenary or often being a, a source of public disorder, really. So these roaming knights were actually a social phenomenon that were taking place in the Middle Ages. And by the late 12th century, they were finding their way into the Arthurian legends as a literary motif, albeit in a much more romanticised way. I think in terms of chivalry, I mentioned in the introduction that the Arthurian legends were a means of exploring what chivalry means. So chivalry was basically an, kind of a set of uncodified rules that determined how aristocrats were supposed to behave with one another. So that included magnanimity in victory, at least to people in the same social class and religion as yourselves, to behave honourably towards women, to be brave and to be lavish in your appearance and also in your displaying of your, your feats of arms. And this has been seen by historians as a kind of uneasy compromise between, on the one hand, the increasing reach of the Christian values that we've talked about earlier, the increasing role and strength of the church, but with that pre-existing Germanic warrior culture, with its emphasis on hedonism and, and violence. And I think you definitely see that theme of chivalry being explored in the Arthur legends, for example, Lancelot and Guinevere, there's the dilemma, isn't there, of is it more chivalrous to be loyal to your lord or to your lady? In Gawain and the Green Knights, an episode in the Arthur legends, there's that dilemma, isn't there, is which is more chivalrous to die bravely or to avoid your own unnecessary death? And um, I think that topic of chivalry comes in for particularly stinging satire in pythons and i think that that's because the popularity of the arthurian legends in the 19th and 20th centuries can be seen as part of a repackaging of chivalry as a code of behavior for the upper middle class promulgated by the british public school system and elite universities which obviously the pythons were a product of and i think it's fair to say that they were deeply critical of in other of their sketches so I, th I think that chivalry in particular, the kind of uber-masculinity inherent is something that comes under particular criticism. So for example, the Lancelot episode that we've mentioned already, when in order to save a damsel who isn't a damsel, Lancelot slaughters a whole wedding party. Then you've also got the character of Sir Robin, who doesn't live up to any of the standards of chivalry to comic effect. And then possibly the most of the three would be the example of the, is it the Black Knight? Yeah. <laughs> who uh, refuses to stop fighting, even if he's had it, his limbs cut off entirely. So really taking the values of chivalry and their absurdity to the most extreme conclusion there. And does the quest to find a, a shrubbery fit into this as well? Is that kind of sending up the, the ridiculous things that these knights might have to do to prove their worth? I think that's that would be another excellent example, Sam, yeah, definitely. Highlighting the pointlessness of that need to prove yourself, which is a part of chivalry for sure. So, Phil, in one of the most famous scenes of the the film, there is a very dangerous rabbit, um, I'll put it that way. <laughs> Do rabbits have any kind of significance in the in the Arthur legends? Is there any specific reason why you think the Pythons have chosen a rabbit? over um, any other animal? So the history of killer rabbits in the Arthurian legends goes back all the way to the original Welsh, Sam. I'm obviously joking. <laughs> oh, you had me for a second there, Phil. <laughs> no, unfortunately, the grail 
it's not guarded even by any beast, not even the rabbit in the Grail literature. I think perhaps the pythons may have been inspired by Hades' three-headed dog in that scene who guards the underworld. However, there are um, lots of weird and wonderful animals in Arthurian legends. I do have a particular favourite. This is from the Vulgate Cycle, and I'll read a passage from it if you allow me. Variegated in every way, it had the head and neck of a sheep, and these were as white as new snow. And it had feet, legs, and thighs of a dog, and all this was as black as coal. And it had the breast and body and rump of a fox and the tail of a lion. That sounds quite funny, actually. Maybe <laughs> they should have used that in the in the, in the film. What was the, what was the name of that creature? <laughs> um, the the killer sheep dog fox lion of animals. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying. So, Phil, you mentioned um, five of the ways that the Arthur legend has been told previously. If we imagine this is the sixth iteration of the legend, um, it ends with the the police arresting those responsible for the historian's murder and shutting the, the film down. I'm assuming that that doesn't happen in any of the previous five versions. No, this is this is a new innovation. I won't answer the question what happens in the other versions. You'll just have to read that for yourself. Is that because they're all different? (laughs) (laughs) But for me, I think it's an integral part of what the Pythons are trying to do. I think as as well as satirising some of the traditional themes, so for example, the satire of chivalry, the satire of the origins of the British people, as in it's not a golden age, you were peasants in the mud and satirising the theme of ideal government by bringing in the anarcho-syndicalists. I think the Pythons are also satirising the role that historians can have and have had in the past in creating a reverence of the past, basically. I think the Pythons are saying something quite, I would go as far as to say, you know, quite important, really, that just because something has happened in the past, we don't need to revere it. And I do think that there is a school of history, possibly one that existed with more force in perhaps in the 60s and 70s, but I still think you see it among TV historians today, which you could call the reverential school of history. And I, for one, would say that that is ripe for debunking. And I think another thing which the death of the historian, possibly what they were trying to achieve is, or maybe what I would like them to have been trying to achieve by this was also, I suppose, satirising the popular view of the historian as a man with snowy white hair and a posh accent and a bow tie. And I think, well, looking around the room here, all white men, I'm afraid, but no bow ties. Not that much grey hair either. Yeah. <laughs> a few grey beard hairs. Well, hopefully we don't fall into the category of historians who revere the past quite as much as some of the other historians of the past, shall we say. What do you think about that particular scene? I think the ending is probably, from what I've seen of the Pythons talking about it, is basically because they couldn't think of how to end the film properly and they just went, right, okay, let's do that. But of course, you know, the historian is in the earlier part of the film, so they must have filmed that for a particular reason. So maybe there is some kind of connection between... I'm trying to think. I think at least one, maybe two, of the Pythons read history at university, so they had 
experience of, of those types of historians. But yeah, it's uh, one of the great cinema endings, I would argue. There is one question that I want to ask before we ask the final question. I have to ask, I think I might know the answer to this, and it might have been hinted at in one of your earlier answers, Phil, but uh, was King Arthur real? Was he a real historical figure? So I think you can divide current historical opinion on this into three camps. So one would be that there was a real person and that they were a warrior leader who did lead a, albeit very small, British-speaking tribe in some battles in post-Roman Britain. So you could call this the, the no-smoke-without-fire school. The second school, you could call them the Arthur as a composite figure school, that basically the attributes and deeds of different people over time were ascribed to a single figure in law, L-O-R-E, who became Arthur. Uh, there still is a persistent third school, which is the no such person school. And they would point to the fact that, for example, the Venerable Bede, writing only a few centuries after when this Arthurian figure was supposed to be around, and who in other matters, it writes in a lot of detail about this period. If there had been a figure, Arthur, why wasn't he mentioned by Bede? And then I suppose also the fact that despite the fact that he is one of the most searched after individuals in history, the scantiness of material evidence, despite the kind of exhaustive efforts, that feeds into the no such person argument. I'm not myself a historian of late antiquity or the Middle Ages, but I think to speak on their behalf, <laughs> uh, you could say that they might have a what you might call a, a bit of a love-hate relationship with Arthur. On the one hand, it is hard to resist the opportunity for funding and public interest. If your research proposal or your museum has got something to do with Arthur in, then, you know, the wallets come out, let's put it crudely. But on the flip side of that, you could say that it's, you know, it's a pity that all of that funding and all of that interest being channeled into Arthur is being channeled into finding evidence for something which, even if it does exist, you know, finding the bones of a man called Arthur probably isn't going to greatly increase our, our understanding of that period, whereas research into other things would have a lot more value, really. Well, that's a very sensible answer to a very unsensible film. But unreferential. Well, that's what we're going for. Yeah. So finally, thanks very much, Phil, for your, your expertise on, on this episode. If I could ask you once again to summarise your thoughts and collate them over the next couple of sentences to summarise what can Monty Python and the Holy Grail tell us about the Arthurian legends. So I would say that Monty Python is a retelling of the Arthurian legends par excellence. It contains many of the characters, elements, and storylines of the Arthurian legends, and it deals with many of the key themes, such as the origins of the British people, ideal forms of governance, and themes of chivalry and romance. But it does so in a distinctly modern, anarchic, and satirical way, which is very much of its own time. For that reason, I'm a fan. Well, thanks very much, Phil. I can say I am too. And so it just leaves me to thank our uh, guests, Phil Heaton, Sam Manning, and to thank you all for listening. Please join us again for another episode of the Historian's Cup. Bye. Right. Thank you. <laughs>